Good morning. Uh, today's reading is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and it's on page 1773 in the Black Church Bibles, but it's also on the screen. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Michael, as well, for the kind words for knowing that there was going to be a talk given about my leadership five minutes before I got up to do a sermon on Christian leadership. I probably wouldn't have slept all week, so thanks. <laughs> probably, a, probably a good thing. Leadership is something that affects all of us. Um, all of us have sat under leadership of various kinds throughout our lives, and whether we realize it or not, we have expectations 
of the people who lead us. If they meet those expectations, we'll be happy. If they don't, we won't be. So what are your personal expectations of the people who lead you, particularly those who lead in a, in a church context? What are your core expectations of Chris, a senior pastor of this church? What do you expect of me as I work underneath him? What would you have underlined and, and highlighted and written in bold in our job descriptions if you were writing them? Well, the passage that Mel just read is about the appropriate expectations to have of Christian leaders, as well as how we should respond to our leaders. It sets a, a challenge both for leaders and for those who are led. Now, as we've read through the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians over these past few weeks, what we've seen is that the church in Corinth had got things wrong with regard to their leaders. Paul has explained to them that God's power and wisdom is displayed not through good speaking or through worldly wisdom, but through the message of the cross, through Jesus laying down his life to bring us to God. It's a foolish message by human standards, and yet understanding it is what it means to be truly spiritual. But Paul then tells them that you're more worldly than spiritual. And the evidence for that is in how they treat their leaders, how they view their leaders, being divided over who they think the best Christian leader is. Their obsession with the wisdom of the world around them has given them a wrong understanding of what they should look for in a leader. And so Paul begins chapter four by telling them, this then is how you ought to regard us. And he proceeds to explain to them what a right attitude is to have toward leaders. He tells them two things to avoid and one thing to do. So firstly, not inappropriately judging them. How ought the Corinthian Christians to regard their leaders? Well, verse one, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. These mysteries refers to God's salvation plan. So Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so the primary requirement of a leader isn't fine speech or, or great worldly wisdom. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness to Christ, whom they serve. Faithfulness to the message of the gospel that they've been entrusted with. And if it's Jesus whom they're serving, and Jesus who they're required to be faithful to, then whose judgment is it that really matters? It's Jesus' judgment, isn't it? And so Paul says to the Corinthians, I don't really care if you judge me or if anyone judges me. I don't even judge myself. I don't think I've done anything particularly wrong, but it doesn't matter what I think because Jesus, when he judges, he's going to get it far more right than I ever will. And so is Paul saying here that we shouldn't judge Christian leaders at all? Is that what he's saying? It'd be quite a, quite a convenient thing for a Christian leader to tell people, wouldn't it? And yet, we know that, that church leaders over the years have, have made mistakes. They've, they've got things wrong. They've caused great harm. Surely there must be checks and balances for that, right? Surely we can't just wait until the day of judgment for everything to be judged right. Well, actually, in the next two chapters of 1 Corinthians, judgment will be a theme that Paul comes back to quite a bit, and judgment of a nature that church leaders wouldn't be excluded from 
either. And so it's clear that Paul doesn't have a problem with judgment so much. But the problem in Corinth is that the judgment that's being made is a flawed one because it's grounded in human wisdom. Paul, Apollos, and, and other leaders are being weighed against each other on the basis of how well they speak, how their, their wisdom weighs up against the wisdom of the, the secular speakers of that culture. So the question was not, is Paul preaching Christ crucified? But rather, is he a good speaker? Does he speak in a way that, that others will be impressed at And evidently, the judgment being made of Paul by many of them was that, actually, no, he's not that impressive a speaker. He's not particularly wise. He's not particularly eloquent. So should we be discerning our leaders, checking that their their teaching and their lives are lined up with the message of the cross? Absolutely, we should be. But to judge them on the basis of how they conform to the values of our culture that's an unhelpful judgment. For example, you might think that Chris is a better dresser than me. Like, of course he is. He wears shirts with flowers and fruit on. I I can't compete with that at all. (laughs) But to think of him as being more worthy of respect than me on that basis, it'd be silly, wouldn't it? Because we're not called to be well-dressed. That's not what God's called us to do. Now, Paul isn't dismissing cultural values altogether here. In fact, later on, he'll tell the Corinthians how he became all things to all people so that people would hear the gospel and believe it. See, he values the things that the the surrounding world values as far as they serve the proclamation of the message. What he doesn't want, though, is for, for these things to be the basis of Christians judging their leaders. So should Christian leaders today try to to dress well, to speak well, to do those things that the world values? Well, yes, to to some extent, we'd we'd absolutely be wise to. I did a a ministry apprenticeship a couple of years ago, so I started about five years ago before I went to Bible college, and uh, my trainer, who was a pastor of one of the other Trinity churches, the first time he heard me speak publicly, his Pretty much his first step after that was to enroll me into a public speaking course. And the, the six weeks in that public, which was real pump up, the, the six weeks in that public speaking course transformed me from being a woeful speaker into a, a less woeful speaker. <laughs> which, you know, hopefully I've made some further inroads over the years. Improving my speaking doesn't mean that I'll save people through clever words, does it? But it's appropriate given what an important message we have to to proclaim and to share, to make every effort that we communicate this message well. It's still the message that's most important though. The cultural values that we follow only serve the message being heard and believed by those who need to. The Corinthians, they'd gone too far. They They were beginning to value the cultural values above the message. And Paul says to them, no, that's wrong. That's wrong to to value it that way. He also says in verse 5 that Jesus, when he judges, will expose the motives of the heart. So that's his job, not ours. There's a, a very real danger when we judge or discern the words or actions of other people to attribute motive to them, to analyze what someone has said or done through the lens of 
what we assume their motivation was for saying or doing that. Our emotions affect the way that we process this, a situation. They, they cause us to read things into it. The thing is, though, we can never fully know the reasons people have for doing what they do. You know, how arrogant is it for me to think that I can judge someone else's motives? In fact, who of, else, who of us can even understand our own motives completely? It's really, it's dangerous and often damaging to assume that we can diagnose someone else's heart from our vantage point. We should be discerning of our leaders, discerning that they're being faithful to Jesus and to his gospel message in their words and in their actions. But when we judge them by the world's standards, we're missing the point of what's truly important in Christian leadership. And when we judge the motives of their hearts, we're doing what only Jesus can do. We're not to inappropriately judge our leaders, and we're not to boast about them. Verse 6, Paul says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. I take it he's referring really to everything he said so far in these opening chapters. The point being that God alone is worthy of praise. Not Paul, not Apollos, not any other human leader. God alone. What's Paul's aim here? It's that they won't be puffed up with pride because they follow one human leader rather than another. And he then follows this up in verse 7 with a series of stinging rhetorical questions that he fires at them. Who makes you different from anyone else? Is it the leader that you support? Of course it isn't. It's Jesus alone who gives us a new identity. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, nothing. We've seen in chapter 1 that everything we have of worth, every spiritual gift, comes from God because of his grace to us in Jesus. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Why boast in which human leader you follow when everything that you have is from God? Paul then sets about showing them that true Christian leadership is actually not something worth boasting to the world about. And he does this with a, a devastating comparison between the Corinthians' lives and his own. And you can hear the sarcasm and the irony in his tone as he says to them, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've begun to reign. The Corinthians think that they can have all of the blessings now. They think that they can have a Christianity that allows them to look good in the eyes of the surrounding world and to boast in their own wisdom. They don't need to wait for glory. They've got it right now. And they've left Paul behind in this. They don't need him. The irony, of course, is that if we, look, if we think back to chapter 1, what we see is that the Corinthian Christians weren't particularly impressive people. They weren't wise by the world's standards. They, they weren't of noble birth. They weren't that impressive. And Paul says to them, I wish you really had begun to reign. I wish the promised eternal glories really had come now, because then I'd get to enjoy them with you. But life for Paul and for the other apostles is anything but that. And now in those days when a battle was fought um, by the Roman army, when the, the victorious army would come back home, there'd be a big, a big procession 
as the army came back. So you'd have all the, the chiefs and leaders of the army, those in positions of honor who would come first in the procession, and then you'd sort of have a, a descending order of honor until we got right to the end and we'd have all the, the slaves and the prisoners who were condemned to die in the arena. It was a position of great shame and great dishonor. And that's how Paul describes the apostles. While the, the Corinthians consider themselves so wise and so strong and so honored in the sight of the world, the apostles appear as weak, dishonored fools. They go hungry and thirsty, in rags, brutally treated, homeless. They work with their hands in a, a culture where manual labor was despised and looked down on. They're the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. They don't sound like leaders worth boasting about, do they? The Corinthians would have looked at this sort of life and thought, they should be more like us. They should be wise like us. But actually the opposite is true. It's the Corinthians who should be more like Paul. Because the way that Paul has chosen is the way of the cross. As we have a look at verses 9 to 13, there are echoes, aren't there, of the path that Jesus walked as he went to the cross to give his life in exchange for ours so that we might have forgiveness of sins and true life. It's a foolish message. It's an offensive message. Who wants to be told that they're a sinner who needs saving? That's not popular news. And yet the message of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. And to live in light of the cross is to choose a path that will never be easy or glamorous or popular in the eyes of the surrounding world. A path of great cost, responding graciously to mistreatment, accepting humility. It's a path that a true leader will walk, which is why our leader shouldn't be someone who we find ourselves boasting to the world about but they should be someone whose teaching and whose life points us to Jesus. Which brings us to the, the third point on the outline there. What's a right attitude to have toward Christian leaders? Following them as they follow Jesus. Paul tells them, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to urge you to imitate me. He doesn't want them to be wowed by the latest great speaker, but to follow his example as he follows the example of Jesus. And the sting here is that when, when Paul tells them to imitate him, he's telling them to imitate the way of the cross that he's walking, to give up on a comfortable Christianity where we look no different to the world around us, to embrace the foolish message of the cross and the consequences that come with it. Now, at some point, holding to the gospel message is going to be uncomfortable people will think we're stupid. They'll think we're narrow-minded. They'll think less of us. Perhaps you've felt the weight of the world's disapproval and contempt as you've lived out your faith. Beck was up here last week talking about Jesus Week, explaining what that, what, what that was all about, the week of evangelistic intent on university campuses by the, the Christian group there. I remember when I was about Beck's age, about 10 years or so ago, being a very young Christian and being on my first Jesus Week, and it was, 
it was really the first time I'd ever stepped out with my faith. It was really the first time that I put myself in that position of discomfort in my faith. And it was a hard path to walk. Sorry for Beck and Jacob who have got Jesus Week and have to hear this, but it is, it is hard putting yourself out there and exposing yourself to the, the contempt and the disapproval of the rest of the world. And it's a path that we can only walk when we know how great Jesus is. And so it's important that a true, faithful Christian leader won't leave us amazed with how great they are. They'll leave us amazed at how great Jesus is. A true leader will point us to how much Jesus loved us in laying down his life for us, to how the cross has brought us into a right relationship with God, to how Jesus' resurrection gives us the sure hope of eternal life. It will never be about the leader. It will always be about Christ crucified. The leader's gifts and personality and eloquence and wisdom won't be used to shine glory on themselves, but to shine the glory on Jesus alone. There was a a Scottish minister in the 1800s by the name of Robert McShane, and he once said these words, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And perhaps the the second greatest need was his personal self-care. He actually ended up burning out and dying before he got to the age of 30. But when you consider the rich example of good Christian leadership and the devastating impact of wayward Christian leadership, you'd have to say he's got a good point when he says that. If a Christian leader is faithfully preaching and teaching Christ crucified and living a life that's visibly consistent with this message, the congregation is well served. Most of us will leave this church at some point. I'm hoping not too soon, and I'm hoping there'll be good reasons, like going on a a church plant that we do at some point in time. Uh, But if and when you do leave this church, go somewhere where you're going to be led by someone who does this, someone whose teaching and life is rooted in the cross, someone who will point you to Jesus. With all of this in mind, Paul is sending Timothy, his fellow faithful leader, to remind them of Paul's way of life, which is consistent with his teaching. And knowing that there are arrogant people around the place who are stirring up trouble in Corinth, Paul is planning a visit himself to deal with these people. Because the kingdom of God isn't a matter of worldly wisdom or clever speech. It's a matter of power. The power and wisdom of the message of the cross revealed by the Spirit of God. That's how it is with the kingdom of heaven and that's how it is to be with the church. It's all about Christ crucified, not empty words. And Paul is jealous for the cross to be front and center of everything that happens in the church. And that begins with his own message, backed up by a way of life that reflects that message. He sets them an example to follow. 
Christian ministry is a unique role. The highs are very high, the lows are very low. The lines between work and personal life are, are very blurred. Your spiritual and emotional and physical selves all get mixed up and, and thrown into it. The expectations can be overwhelming. The KPIs can be hard to define and mostly out of your control anyway. Um, the the, expectate, the, um, the constant temptation is there to compare yourself with other, other people in ministry, other people who have had more successful ministries or who are more gifted. And you constantly wonder as well, what do the people think about me? Do they trust me? Do they know that I love them? There's a lot to distract the Christian leader from their core business of taking ourselves and taking other people to the cross. Chris and myself and and all other Christian leaders depend on Jesus to help us to have cross-centered and God-honoring ministries in every way. And we need your help as well. We need your prayers and your encouragement for us to, to keep preaching and living out the cross. We need your positive feedback when we've done it faithfully. And we need your loving correction when we fall short. Christian leaders are servants of Christ, entrusted with the gospel. They shouldn't be sources of judgment or objects of pride and boasting, but should faithfully point us to Jesus, point us to the message of the cross, and set us a living example in them. Teaching this message and living it out, that's what we should expect of our leaders. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word to the church in Corinth, which is equally meaningful and valuable for us many years later. We pray for all those who lead, that we would take this word very seriously, that we would not measure ourselves on worldly standards, but uh, that we would live in response to the message of the cross, and that that would be the basis of all that we do as we lead. And we pray for all of us who are led as well, that this would be what we value most in our leaders, that they point us to the cross in their words and in their action. We pray that will be happening in this church and in every church for your praise and glory. Amen.